This is a Partially Examined Life episode preview. You can purchase the full episode individually or support the podcast to get all of our episodes. Review your options at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. You're listening to The Partially Examined Life, a philosophy podcast by some guys who at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 84 is something like, what is wisdom? And we read selections from Friedrich Nietzsche's The Gay Science, published mostly in 1882 with the rest in 1887. You can join the discussion, get links to the book and lots of other information at partiallyexaminedlife.com. This is Mark Lintonmeyer from Madison, Wisconsin. This is Wes Alwyn in Boston, Massachusetts. This is Dylan Casey in Middleton, Wisconsin. Should we do some ground rules? Sure. Sure. Ground rules for our discussion include, number one, try not to assume that our audience has read what we're talking about or has any other background in philosophy. Number two, don't make arguments that hinge on something other than what we've agreed to read. Don't say, you'd understand me if you'd only read, capitalism is fine, now shut up, by the man. <laughs> number three, we will be rigorous and exact in all that we say, unless doing otherwise would be potentially more amusing. So this whole book is divided into aphorisms, some of which are just a couple of sentences and some of which are pages long. And we read many, many of them amounting to about a third of the book. Is that right? Yep. But there are way too many to list right here. So I would suggest that you just go to partiallyexaminedlife.com and look at the episode announcement if you really wish to read exactly what we read in preparation for this. We read all the famous parts, right? Wes, you just took everything that was pulled into one of the Nietzsche compilations. Yeah, I took it from multiple sources, from syllabi and anthologies, and I basically just took the maximal set. And they're divided, it's divided into five books, which are not entirely... There are some thematic connections within a given book. At least it, he sets it up so it sounds like there is. But often it sounds like that these aphorisms, to me or like blog posts. He might pursue common themes between some of them or bring something up and then bring something different up and then come back to the first thing. Uh, it's sort of however the mood struck him. Definitely some sections of it, like book three, which starts out with the death of God, like it really pursues fairly rigorously like one theme for a good half of the book. And then book five, we should say, along with the preface, were added way after the fact. So this was considered the last of his early works, I guess, right before Thus Spake Zarathustra, his more famous fake biblical work that's written in a much different pseudo-fictional style, but this is straight up philosophy. But then after he published books one through four here, and then he published Zarathustra, and he published Beyond Good and Evil, and then he, for some reason, said, oh, I'm going to put another edition of Gay Science out and tack on book five and the preface and some songs at the end. So how do you want to start? We could try and say what gay science means, and I think ultimately the theme of the book is a call for this fusion between the instinctual parts of our nature, which is what the gay has to do with, and then the rational, which he associates with science. You know, some background to that, I'm going to just briefly mention the book that we didn't do on the podcast, which is The Birth of Tragedy, but it's kind of a commonly referenced Nietzschean distinction, and that's between the Apollonian and the Dionysian. So this call for a fusion isn't new, where the Apollonian represents kind of rationality and order, and the Dionysian represents the instinctual and the irrational. And so the birth of tragedy kind of bemoans the loss of that, celebrates the fusion of that at a certain stage of pre-Socratic Greek tragedy, and then bemoans the loss of that fusion after Socrates and after a certain kind of turn to a more rational frame of mind. And then he criticizes that, you know, and that kind of carries on into modern European culture. 
And at the time he wrote Birth of Tragedy, he sort of thought that German music, Beethoven and Wagner were reintroducing the Dionysian in a good way. I think we'll see in the gay science, he's going to backtrack on that and say, you can actually go too far in the Dionysian direction. I think he mentions Dionysius in the gay science, but he doesn't really mention the Apollonian. He's going to talk more about something which I think you know we can associate with the Apollonian, which are ascetic ideals and Christianity and nihilism and things like that. And we did do a podcast on the genealogy of morals where he outlined some of that. So I think it's very useful for listeners to go back to that before they listen to this, because in a way, the gay science elaborates on a lot of those themes. Even though it was written earlier, but not that far earlier. The revision was not that far earlier. It was the same year, actually. Yeah, we get the kind of aphoristic... It's almost like he's toying around with these ideas and, you know, the genealogy of morals is one of the rare long form essay approaches that he does. So it gives it's a more straightforward version of some of the things that we get hints at here. Like the birth of tragedy is. Yeah, right. I think your summary about the Apollonian was good. And the word that comes to mind that might be more familiar in terms of the criticism that Nietzsche would have of being too Dionysian would be romantic, don't you think? Mm hmm. Well, that, yeah, that's his new whipping boy. Dionysus is the Greek god of wine, and whereas in The Birth of Tragedy, that's presented as, as you said, is the irrational. Here, he ends up, by the end, when he brings up the term again, and it doesn't show up a lot in this text, the meaning has changed to something that is just overflowing with energy. It's not necessarily against reason, mm-hmm. but it is against asceticism. It is against the despiser of life. I mean, it comes to represent what he thinks virtue, insofar as he's going to use any term like that, is, is this Dionysian. Yeah. Yeah. Living dangerously is out of Dionysus. He mentions romanticism actually in the the first aphorism, but 370 is where he explicitly says, yes, I misunderstood Schopenhauer (laughs) and German music as bringing back a fusion of the Dionysian and the Apollonian. And he says, I failed to see that the distinctive character is romanticism, which is prompted by basically this feeling of impoverishment where he thinks you're on the right track when your art is motivated by an overfulness of life, which is one of the associations to the Dionysian affirmation and strength instead of reaction. So romanticism is a kind of reaction, right? It's a reaction against rationality, but that reaction is still a kind of form of impoverishment. So it's tricky to get out of Nietzsche's maze, right? Because you might think, well, here's a critic of the Enlightenment, let's say, or here's a critic of rationality, but that's not the case. And that's the whole point of using a title like The Gay Science, where what he's calling for is fusion of both principles in the right proportion. He's not saying get rid of science and get rid of reason or the opposite. Yeah, that's why, for me, it makes sense that his hero is Socrates, even if he has tremendously complicated relationship with Socrates. Certainly like the Socrates of the Apology is the great inquirer moved by his daemon, seems to me something close to what he's talking about. Yeah. And I think we should say, you know, when we say ascetic ideals, we're referring back to the genealogy of morals. And I think the best way to think about that is anything that involves, just take the term literally self-denial, where we basically deny ourselves a full expression of our instincts. So where for Nietzsche, this the most fundamental instinct is going to be the will to power. And the genealogy describes the rise of ascetic ideals as he gives that account of slave morality and he gives that account of bad conscience. But basically, the gist of those is that there are political forces that lead to the rise of ascetic ideals because the strong or whoever has political power, basically, once hierarchy enters society, then the weak 
are forced to curtail their instincts. And then the whole rise of what Nietzsche in the genealogy calls slave morality is a matter of making a virtue of having to curtail one's instincts and saying, well, this is what everyone ought to do. And if you don't do that, you're evil. So that is the uh, ascetic ideal against which Nietzsche will rail in the, in the future. But um, we see him railing against that here as well. When I was reading it and I was paying attention to the time that it was published, I don't know why it hadn't really occurred to me before, but that this is during a Victorian era in Europe. And I don't know enough about the history to know to what extent sort of Victorianism wheedled its way into German social activity and stuff, or just was something that went all across Europe, a kind of, I don't want to use puritanical, but just Victorian disposition towards morals. And that there's some of that background that he's reacting against. Well, yes, ultra-formalism being very formal, being very reverent. Certainly all that is there. He does have a special place for British moralists, a special place <laughs> in his hell of them being especially dry and tedious. But you know, he talks about Kant as having much the same, at least a related sort of anti-Dionysian spirit. Yeah, well, especially in his moral theory, right? You know, the yeah. categorical yeah. imperative and the universalism and stuff like that. He would find objectionable. Yeah, he rails against the categorical imperative. Where what is the uh let's see, well it's in five. He he talks about the categorical imperative as a refined servility, so that those who are too proud to serve earthly masters, but they need to be a servant of something because they lack the will and the spirit to be their own masters. So they subject themselves instead to the categorical imperative. I think that point about the serving yourself is important because one of the things that gets lost I think in Nietzsche's constant glorification of the Dionysian is to forget or you know, miss the discipline that he expects. And I think it's also kind of hard to sort out at times what that means. There's a combination of deep spiritedness and integrity with a lot of discipline. That isn't a discipline of adhering to exactly what other people say. Yeah, part of that discipline is there's a lot in here where truth-seeking and skepticism are valorized. He's for these things. Right. So that's the irony and why we need a gay science and why sometimes it's like you're reading the popular kid or the uh, you're just trying to figure out how to get on their good side. And it seems like any particular strategy you pursue, then in the next aphorism, he's going to say, no, that's not it. <laughs> yeah. no, it's really... Man, are you, are you really even being consistent here? But this really all comes out of a rigorous, I would say Socratic attempted self-criticism that it is so rigorous that it extends even to criticism itself, right? <laughs> that just taking as a foundational impulse, the will to truth, this criticism, that itself is something that needs to be analyzed or at least acknowledged, you know, that, that it's not a self-evidently rational thing to do to criticize. And so, I mean, this gets at what you were saying about asceticism. Well, all science, where science is not taken as experimental science, what we think of as the physical sciences or something now, but just any attempt to be systematic about knowledge, which even as a philologist is something that he was, that he was trained in. So he wants to be scientific on the one hand. He wants to be rigorous in questioning things. 
But on the other hand, he sees the typical scientist's demeanor of let's slow down and analyze this, that there are limitations in that too, that that needs to be questioned, that there's something boorish and dull and stupid about the typical scientific demeanor exactly because it comes down to this asceticism, the will to truth above all else, that there's something kind of crazy about that. So you need to be suspicious of that, even while you're trying to be thoroughgoing in your questioning and your intellectual conscience is at full operation. Yeah. And when we say will to truth, it gets tricky because we can really mean two things by that. One of them from our discussion of on truth and lie and the extra moral sense, will to truth can mean basically what amounts to a commitment to metaphysical constructs. And the conclusion of truth and lie is basically that what he calls a drive for truth in that essay is actually grounded in this fabricating and artistic and instinctual, fundamentally instinctual drive. Ironically, the drive for truth is instinctual at bottom, but what it does when it becomes illegitimate, it hides its instinctual origin from itself. We see that criticism in the truth and lie essay, and we see a lot of that criticism in the gay science. It hides the instinctual origin from itself, and part of its way of doing that is confusing, and here he's sort of using a neo-Kantian epistemology, but it confuses appearances with things in themselves. Now, there's a broader sense of will for truth, which Nietzsche advocates, I think, in the gay science all over the place, where he's advocating being critical and doubtful and being an inquirer and being a truth seeker. I don't think he has anything bad to say about that broader sense. I think it becomes ascetic and it becomes illegitimate for Nietzsche when it descends into this equation of, you know, this sort of religious and metaphysical and moralistic, those sorts of truths. I guess I just see him more as walking a tightrope here. Yeah. So when he says stuff like um, he praises the Greeks for their purposeful shallowness, he's talking about this in regard to Greek artistry, Greek tragedy. This is in the preface. The Greeks were superficial out of profundity. Right. To stop courageously at the surface, to adore appearance. Actually, that sounds very much like what you were just saying about Kant and the thing in itself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If you're trying to plunge the depths of everything, then you end up being otherworldly about it. You end up just looking at, say, the skeptical arguments and, well, this isn't exactly as it appears to me, so therefore I should only care about the thing itself and not about these appearances. And then you end up being otherworldly and anti-life. There's a moral downside. The embracing appearances thing is is interesting because your relationship to appearances becomes aesthetic, right? You give up any determination of whether the appearance is a thing in itself or has a certain kind of relation to a thing in itself or has some sort of metaphysical status. And again, that's related to the affirmation of the instincts. I think throughout the gay science, you see this sort of association between the instinctual and then this superficial appearance part. So section 54 and 107, I think those are the two other places where he calls for affirming the appearance. So 54, we're stuck with these dreamlike appearances and knowing it as appearance and instinct is our way of prolonging it and continuing the dream. So there's a comparison there of this being stuck with appearances to being in a dreamlike state. And then 107, error is a kind of condition of human knowledge and that all we have are the appearances would be unbearable if we didn't have art. And he calls art our goodwill towards appearance. So he's pivoting off Kant's notion of goodwill, which is the foundation of Kantian moral theory. But basically, when we direct our goodwill towards appearance as aesthetic phenomena, we make existence bearable. That's his sort of positive account, his way of avoiding nihilism in the face of the death of God and all the things he's prophesying here. 
I mean, that's, it seems like there are three different things that are floating around here. One is the post-Kantian metaphysical claim that we need to just forget about the thing in itself and pay attention to the world as experienced. But we've established that in many, many other podcasts. Then was this issue that you were just discussing of the aesthetic turn of making things bearable, that this is a very sort of existentialist sounding claim, that there are harsh truths such as that the origin of all our knowledge is in error, right? Errors that were helpful to survival and those things solidified and those are just us agreeing on things and really just dealing with the fact that God is dead and all this. What enables the philosopher to be awesome to, to go beyond conventional thinking, conventional mores is in part this aesthetic turn. So that's the second theme. But then I just want to get back to the original one that I do think if you look back at the preface right near the end of it, there is some sort of criticism of the unfettered will to truth. He says, uh, one will hardly find us again on the path of those Egyptian youths who endanger temples by night, embrace statues, and want by all means to unveil, uncover, and put in a bright light whatever is kept concealed for good reasons. Hmm. No, this bad taste, this will to truth, this truth at any price, this youthful madness in the love of truth have lost their charm for us. For that we are too experienced, too serious, too merry, too burned, too profound. We no longer believe that truth remains truth when the veils are withdrawn. We have lived too much to believe this. Today we consider it a matter of decency, not to wish to see everything naked, or to be present at everything, or to understand and know everything. And then it, two paragraphs later, he's talking about the Greeks and their superficiality out of profundity. Mm -hmm. And so that sounds like, you know, it's being skeptical about the process of inquiry itself, that... <laughs> It's the basis of the partially examined life <laughs> that not only is there something impossible about having true objective knowledge of everything, especially not all at once, but there's something undesirable in it as well. We have to keep in mind why we're doing inquiry in the first place, which I think is a lot of what this is, book is about is what is inquiry as a human activity, that it's something arising out of needs, that something arises out of instincts. But like everything, it sort of, once it's established as a practice, it gets a life of its own. And this will to truth can be carried to a dangerous excess. Yeah, and I think he says a lot in here about how the inability to tolerate uncertainty leads to these metaphysical claims and leads mm -hmm. to moral claims and ascetic ideals. He's very in favor of, and there are a number of passages where he advocates being able to tolerate uncertainty and basically advocating skepticism. The word skeptical and skepticism reappear throughout the text. So it's not about not being an inquirer per se or a scientist, but it's about not foreclosing on questions, not pretending to have knowledge that you don't really have. So, you you know, positing easy answers to things, whether it's moral commandments or it's a metaphysical concept of the soul or it's God. In a way, it's still a kind of Socratic ideal, which is for Plato and Socrates, this was doxo Sophia, conceit of wisdom, not pretending to know things that you can't know. And it falls in line also with the Kantian critique, which is about putting limits on knowledge, saying knowledge has its limits. And we get into these sort of metaphysical errors when we make these illegitimate applications, when we treat, say, the conditions of the possibility, of, in Kant's case, of experience as if they were objects of experience. Nietzsche is pivoting off that call to not do that and treat appearance as appearance. Well, and Nietzsche's at the end, it's the second to last aphorism where he talks about his own writing and the question of being unbandable. He says that the way he writes, especially now with this aphoristic style, is in some sense a consequence of the desire for truth, but the 
comfort with uncertainty. So the fact that he's non-systematic is a, he's not writing a critique of pure reason the way Kant would write because it's not. Because he has attention deficit disorder. <laughs> <laughs> Which he's redefining as cheerfulness. No, I'm just kidding. Well, he's avoiding the pitfall of too much will to truth, right? And fetishizing truth. In that way, it's not that he's, it's merely skepticism, but it's that the activity of truthfulness is not the highest virtue. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, mentioning the writing is a good, because I think for people who might think the gay science is a weird title and what do gayness <laughs> and science have to do with each other, even if you understand the gayness is cheerfulness and what do art and science have to do with each other? But I think for Nietzsche, you can understand it in a very personal way. And it's the kind of thing that I experienced and maybe Mark, you might've experienced this too, but for someone who he was out to be a scholar and he wrote an essay, I think as his I think that was his doctoral thesis, right? The his birth of tragedy? tragedy? I mean, yeah, the, the birth of tragedy. Yeah. Which was basically an essay instead of a dissertation with all the footnotes. So someone might say, well, isn't this really just a playing out of your conflict about whether or not you want to be a writer or whether or not you want to be a scholar? Because a scholar is a one version of scientist. Nietzsche is using science in the broad sense. So that's one way I think of getting at this is for those of us who've tried to plow through academic writing, that's a very good example of a place where the Dionysian and the artistic are often lacking and the will to truth has gone too far because often you see people who don't care about writing. They don't care about style. In some cases, they don't care about clarity. In other cases, they care about clarity to the exclusion of having anything to say and to the exclusion of, let's say, beauty. The aesthetic stops being a consideration for many scholars, which I think is unfortunate. I'm reading my own personal experiences into Nietzsche, but that may be one of his motivations. Let me read part of 381 there. I don't want either my ignorance or the liveliness of my temperament to keep me from being understandable to you, my friends. Not the liveliness, however much it compels me to tackle matters swiftly, to tackle it at all. For I approach deep problems like cold baths, quickly into them and quickly out again. That one does not get to the depths that way, not deep enough down, is the superstition of those afraid of the water, the enemies of cold water. They speak without experience. The freezing cold makes one swift. And to ask this incidentally, does a matter necessarily remain understood and unfathomed, merely because it has been touched only in flight, glanced at in a flash? Is it absolutely imperative that one settles down on it, that one has brooded over it as an egg? At least there are truths that are singularly shy and ticklish and cannot be caught except suddenly, that must be surprised or left alone. I didn't find this convincing at all, frankly. I feel like any of the things that he touches on in a, a quick aphorism and then returns three aphorisms later to peck a little more at and make a point at, that these could be dealt with without lack of insight in a somewhat more systematic way. And certainly every writer who writes about Nietzsche <laughs> and tries to come up with a system for him or say what his views on ethics actually are is violating his own recommendation. But it couldn't be done without draining his writing of some of its vitality. Is that draining it of insight, making it less fun? I think from Nietzsche's perspective, it seems to me that it'd be draining from his activity as a human being and a philosopher. It drains it of that will to power. I'm not seeing how that term works in there. His Dionysian spirit, is that what you're trying to say? That I think they go hand in hand. 
his self-expression, his creativity. He definitely talks about philosophy as giving birth, as creating something. That does seem a different metaphor. I'm not sure how that jibes with this. You know, you have to catch some issues unawares. <laughs> to, that doesn't sound like I'm creating something to do with it. I, it sounds like I'm bursting into some unknown area and some new perspective and getting an insight. If you think about it too much, if you settle down too much on it, then inevitably you start relating it to everything else you know. You start making it familiar. And that actually you may lose something out of that because he really does emphasize. So here's me trying to answer my own question. Why, why this quick glimpses might actually be legitimate on his view is because so much of what good philosophy is, is trying to get beyond your current perspective, get beyond the familiar to see something striking. And, uh, you know, it's difficult to do that. I think according to him in a premeditated way that that's part of the gayness is this being life as a philosopher. But I'm not sure how to completely apply that. I certainly can apply that to like writing a song, but I don't know if I felt that way about my own philosophical insights. Certainly I've had times where I'm scribbling madly in my notebook or whatever, and it feels very much like writing a song. It's a very similar experience, but it's unclear to me from that, that it follows that that is the only way of getting at some insights or not. He sees great danger in the sedimentation of systematizing. There is the will to truth that needs to be constantly tempered and kept roaming. Mm -hmm. If your intellect feels like it's figured everything out, then that is the surest sign that you need to move on. You need to constantly be confronting it with problems. And if anything, there's a faith in the limitless depths of problems to humanity. They just won't ever go away. The fact that that's true allows you to have a gay science, that you can delight in the fact that there are constantly these problems. And he says something about this in the, the end of three in the preface, the attraction of everything problematic, the delight in an X, however, is so great in such more spiritual, more spiritualized men that this delight flares up again and again like a bright blaze over all the distress of what is problematic over all danger of uncertainty, and even over the jealousy of the lover, we know a new happiness. Does anybody else see this as the whole thing is a, a perfect compliment in a way to Popper from a couple episodes ago, that Popper thinks that our regular faculties for getting knowledge, none of them are flawless. And in fact, they get us error more often than not. We sort of start at a position of error. And that's something that Nietzsche definitely believes that what we consider truth traditionally, and he lists all these things like causality and substance being, having their being, being continuous, all these things are just errors, he thinks. These things that we sort of fixed on, they were helpful to believe to keep life going. And so these became things that we just agreed on and we started calling them truth, but they're no sort of less erroneous than anything else. Well, if you really have a, a respect for objectivity, if you really have a respect for truth, then you don't accept these things just as they are handed down to you, that you're continually sort of battering at problems, even discovering problems and trying to get at things from a different perspective, come up with new explanations. And do you get the connection? Well, definitely in terms of the problem solving, I get the connection. And that we are fallibilists. So the will to truth means you don't get snared down in a stable theory. Once you build a system like Freud, like Marx, then you start to see everything in terms of the system. You need to free yourself from that kind of thing in order to be open to 
advances in knowledge. And in fact, looking for ways to falsify Popper's term. But I think that that's something that Nietzsche considers too, that once we consider something, a basic assumption of our, so even the will to truth itself, or the fact that the world is reasonable and understandable, that once you realize that that is an underlying presupposition of your inquiry, then you make that into a philosophical problem itself. And there's no pre-established methodology. There's no objective epistemic method that you can pull out of your ass and say, oh, that's how I'm going to get at even determining whether this is a real problem and thereby solving it. That the whole thing is much more, I would say, ad hoc, but really ultimately is much more of a creative endeavor than that. This discovery of problems and discovery of ways of questioning things and insights to solving the problems or evolving the problems is a, yeah, so is a creative act. Am I right to say that for Nietzsche, everything's much more about becoming than being? He does say like in 112, he's talking about cause and effects. And he says, our explanations are just description. This is, this is just the point that Hume has made before. What we really are is confronted by a continuum out of which we isolate a couple of pieces, right? The cause and the effects. And he even says that a better description, if you're really going to say what we experience is flux, so that sounds as Heraclitean as anything can be. And he uh, specifically says elsewhere that continuity of being, right? What Parmenides believes, even brings up Parmenides, is an error. Can I just elaborate on 112? Yeah. What, what he's doing in 112 is he's deflating our concept of explanation and the satisfaction we get out of that. Because ultimately, if we think about what we're left with with causality is we're just left with a brute association. And I think he gives the example of a chemical process and then some sort of property associated with that chemical process. But we could think of other examples. And he's also thinking about this in terms of Hume's skepticism about causality and Kant's response to that. So Kant, in a way, is he sort of accepts Hume's skepticism about causality, but then he's trying to resurrect it within his system. And the way he does that is to say, well, insofar as it's applicable to appearances, you know, it's a legitimate objective concept because appearances are things that we construct according to causality. And, you know, at the end of that section 112, Nietzsche points out, though, that's kind of a, that leaves us with a very thin usefulness for causality and explanation, because what are we applying causes to? Lines and bodies and these little constructions we've made. Causality gets this very limited applicability. For Kant, that saves us gives us objectivity back. But for Nietzsche, that's just this world of artistic fabrication. The cognitive faculties are fundamentally fabricating and hence artistic. Yeah. Even though these are fabricated, we can't, you know, he says in 110, there are people that are trying to be true skeptics and live as if they don't believe these errors like causality, but they're just fooling themselves. Like whether it's built into human nature or just so sedimented in our habits, that's not something we can know in advance. But later in that same section in 110, he says, the question is, to what extent can truth endure incorporation? In other words, to what extent, if we discover that you know our notion of cause is something that only applies to things we basically made up, can we actually incorporate that insight into our lives in any meaningful way? So that, that's an open question for him. Well, I think it endure incorporation means to what extent 
do we endure it in the sense of truth can harm life, right? Truth can be mm -hmm. antithetical to life. Yep. But he's an advocate of this, right? I mean, he's an advocate of the radical skeptic and the one who doubts because the alternative is the very things he's objecting to, which is the easy metaphysical explanations. And he starts 110 with that, these, you know, presuppositions about substance and equality and free will and, and the good and things like that. He wants to go along with the notion that there are things to figure out about the world, but make the point that those are constructions that we build to understand the world. Going back to what you were saying about we're not getting to the thing in itself, but we're getting to a articulation that is based upon what we know as human beings that sometimes is just a consequence of how we interact with the world. He says in 112, the second paragraph, it will do to consider science as an attempt to humanize things as faithfully as possible. As we describe things in there one after another, we learn how to describe ourselves more and more precisely. Thanks for listening to this episode preview. You can purchase a full episode at our store page, get it by supporting us through Patreon, or become a partially examined life citizen. We provide supporters with ad-free access to our full catalog, including new exclusive content. Configure our citizen feed to get it all beamed straight to your Apple or Android device. Learn more at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support.